You're listening to Health Beyond Mormonism, an evidence-based health podcast for all the lazy learners who are learning to navigate life after Mormonism. I'm your host, Lindsay Ron, a personal trainer, nutritionist, health coach, and post-Mormon. Come with me as we re-examine everything you've ever been taught over the pulpit about nutrition, mental health, sexuality, and body autonomy, so that you can experience your best health beyond Mormonism. Now let's get into it. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Health Beyond Mormonism, an evidence-based health podcast for Mormon-flavored people who are looking to learn how to navigate their health beyond what they learn from the pulpit. I am your host, Lindsay Run. Today is a good day for some lazy learning, my friends. I love to do these solo podcast episodes because this gives me a chance to kind of dig in and do a little bit of research and talk about some topics that maybe we don't talk about as much when we have interviews or also like, you know, some of these things are just not talked about very much. Um, today's going to be one of those. It's relatively unsexy, but this is something that impacts a lot of people. Seasonal depression. You guys, winter is coming. We've got seasonal depression. Some people call it seasonal affective disorder, SAD. And this has to do with the changing light levels as the seasons change. And it impacts probably everybody to some degree. But for some people, it can cause enough depression symptoms that it can really inhibit their ability to function. So this is going to be a really important podcast episode for anyone who feels like they're just not, you know, up and running to the same degree that they normally are when winter comes. And there are very good reasons for that, very good physiological reasons for that. And I think that, you know, what the takeaway that I want you guys to get from this episode is that if your mental health is not at its 100% best, there are reasons for that and it is not your fault. Like you are not lazy. You didn't do something bad. You didn't do anything sinful to cause this to happen. This is a physiological thing that's happening in your body. Bodies are doing what bodies do. And it's one thing to suffer from, you know, depression and depressive symptoms, but it's another thing to judge yourself for suffering those things. Okay. So we can talk about that. My disclaimer before we really get into this is like, remember, I am a health coach. So I am a personal trainer. I'm a nutrition coach. I'm a health behavior change coach. Um, I professionally function within the bounds of wellness, which means I am not a licensed mental health practitioner. I am not a prescribing body. This information here on this podcast is meant to be educational and meant to sort of give you like a jumping off point to do your own research or to go talk to your own provider if you feel like you're symptomatic and, you know, it, it's something more than you can deal with um, within the bounds of wellness, something more than you can deal with non-prescription interventions. And so I would recommend if you're suffering from depression that you be aware of yourself and your mental health and you go ahead and get yourself uh, intervention, whether that means you need medication or counseling or, you know, whatever. I, for my part in this episode, will cover lots of tips and tricks and things. And above and beyond that, it is really important that you are able to feel safe with yourself and honest with yourself. And that if you need more help than what tips and tricks and wellness can do for you, that you go ahead and set an appointment with your provider. My favorite phrase in health is, there's only so much you can do, but there is so much you can do. And so I'm going to be talking about things that you can do. And for all those things that you can't do, there's nothing wrong. You can go ahead and get help. And there are experts in the field who, who can do those things that you can't do. Okay. All right. So winter is coming. Seasonal depression. Super common. Seasonal affective disorder is the name for it. Um, it's a type of depression related to the amount and the spectrum of light that your retina is taken at different times of year. Now, you know, early morning light is more of that blue spectrum. And like mid-afternoon, evening, you actually have more of a red spectrum of light. Both will play into your neurobiology. But for a seasonal affective disorder, really the one that we're going to look at that makes the most impact on your circadian rhythms 
is the morning light spectrum. So that's going to be that blue light spectrum. Seasonal affective is not the same necessarily as depression that's caused by other things. So, you know, situational things, um, holiday family stress, trauma or grief, you know, every time this Every year this time comes around and you feel a certain way because maybe you lost somebody or you're afraid that something is going to happen with your family that you have like relationship struggles with and stuff. Those things are all valid. They can all cause depression as there are many things that can cause depression. But seasonal affective disorder is specifically caused by the light spectrum and the way that, you know, using the light spectrum at the certain time of day every day impacts your circadian rhythms okay so with seasonal affective disorder you do have winter pattern and summer pattern symptoms that have a lot of overlap but they can be different from each other due to the way your brain triggers the release of hormones based on the light spectrum and the time of day that it gets our first source of the day a johns hopkins article called seasonal affective disorder it's going to be in the show notes um they list off the common symptoms as increased sleep and daytime drowsiness, loss of interest and pleasure in activities formerly enjoyed, social withdrawal and increased sensitivity to rejection, irritability and anxiety, feelings of guilt and hopelessness, fatigue or low energy level, decreased sex drive, decreased ability to focus or concentrate, trouble thinking clearly, increased appetite, especially for sweets and carbohydrates, weight gain, physical problems such as headaches okay and then so that's like your list of wintertime things and it can have a lot of overlap but the summertime list has some other special symptoms uh, this article from the national institute of mental health called seasonal affective disorder adds a few things that will come that will pop up in the summertime uh, you may have trouble sleeping insomnia you may have poor appetite leading to weight loss you may have restlessness and agitation, anxiety, violent or aggressive behavior. Now, these are these symptoms are thought to line up with the way that your eyes see the different light spectrums, the amount of time that they're seeing the light, and the way that they release hormones to prepare the body for what it thinks is the proper daytime, nighttime circadian rhythm. The way it works. <laughs> Now we're going to get sciencey. <laughs> the way SAD works. I would like to start a little bit with the circadian rhythms. You guys have likely heard of this concept, but this is an important one to recognize is that your body works on a clock. In fact, all living things have a circadian rhythm, uh, but your body physiologically is meant to line up with daytime and nighttime. As human beings, we are diurnal animals, which means that we are awake in the day and we sleep at night. Um, we have a master clock called a, let's see if I can pronounce this, suprachiasmatic nucleus. Yeah, I did pretty good on that. Or SCN. Um, and this master clock is inside the hypothalamus. Remember, your hypothalamus is the control center of your brain, controlling your autonomic nervous system and controlling your hormones by signaling the pituitary gland, which excretes the hormones that you need to be prepared to do the different things that different times of daytime would require. So what happens is that your eyes see light coming in, the light hits your retinas, uh, and your retina sends a signal back to the hypothalamus so that it can decide what it needs to do with this information of the light spectrum that it's seeing. This is how your body knows that it's morning time, is the light spectrum that's coming in to your eyes is that blue light. And so once it has detected that blue light, then it will signal the SCN, remember your suprachiasmatic nucleus, to act accordingly for that time of day. So your circadian rhythm which is controlled by this, the hypothalamus, is responsible for like your sleep regulation at night. Because remember, you've got these sleep hormones and you've got these awake hormones, right? And the sleep hormones 
they're going to come around when it's nighttime and time to fall asleep. And they're also going to come around like in the afternoon when it's afternoon nap time. I know a lot of you have probably felt that slump in the afternoon. And contrary to popular American belief, it is actually normal to feel sleepy in the afternoon for a lot of people. And it's actually okay to take a little nap if you feel like you need it. Feeling like you need a nap in the afternoon does not mean that you're lazy. It does not mean that you're not trying hard enough. This is actually a necessary thing for a lot of people in order to be able to be as productive and as healthy as they can be. So, you know, if you feel the need for that afternoon nap, it's not a bad thing. Stop judging yourself. So that's all part of your circadian rhythm, though. You are meant to sleep at night, and a lot of people's bodies are meant to sleep in the afternoon. And your circadian rhythm is also responsible for that awake, high concentrating, high vigilant time of day in the morning and also in the evening time after your afternoon nap time is over. There's that block of time in the evening around like dinner time and hangout time before bed where you feel like, yes, you can concentrate again. You feel like you have a little bit more energy again. A lot of people feel like a lot of people kind of feel like the day is split into two days, you know, like you have your wake up in the morning day and that ends in the afternoon and then you have your wake up after your nap day and that ends at night at bedtime. And so that's your circadian rhythm. It goes and goes and goes and it's controlled by your hypothalamus and your suprachiasmatic nucleus. And this is how it's supposed to be. So SAD happens when you don't receive the correct amount of light needed to signal the hypothalamus. So your body really doesn't recognize that it's daytime when it's daytime. And so your melatonin levels are going to be too high throughout the day and you're just going to feel downregulated or sleepy. There is another fancy word, photoperiodism, which is just this idea that um, supporting the time of day that your brain believes it is is that light spectrum coming into your eyes uh, to help you produce melatonin at the proper times and, and your other hormones. If you have too much melatonin, you're going to feel sleepy. It also can trigger depression symptoms. Uh, a lot of you recognize that depression symptoms kind of line up with really low energy. And that's, you know, melatonin is partially responsible for that. There's also a downregulation in a lot of the other neuro neurotransmitters in your brain uh, that have to do with this photoperiodism. But with the seasonal affective disorder and the symptoms, the depression symptoms that come specifically from SAD, this type of depression tends to, for a lot of people, be more of like the slow, down-regulated, low-energy type of depression, rather than other types of depression that may come out as anxiety or, or more energetic types of depression or rage or, you know... It tends to be the SAD depressions are just a little bit less energetic. Um, not everybody, not all the time. Of course, when it comes to mental health and symptoms, not everybody is the same. But there are some generalities that we can go with as kind of a safe bet. But it's basically, you know, is if your body wants to sleep. So your thoughts are going to be slower and your emotions are just going to be lower and you're just going to feel sleepy and apathetic. Conversely, you know, if we if we contrast this wintertime SAD symptoms with the summertime ones that I listed above that are more energetic types of symptoms, more anxiety, more feeling wired up, more, uh, you know, high emotional states, um, losing sleep and feeling like you're too awake. And because, you know, the summertime SAD symptoms are actually caused by too much light signaling the body that it's like too much awake, too much daytime. And like I said, there are fewer people who feel the effects of summertime SAD, but there are some people that only feel the effects of summertime SAD and not the wintertime SAD. And there are some people that only feel wintertime SAD symptoms and not summertime SAD symptoms. So, you know, like I said, you know, this is a complex mental health issue and rarely happens in a vacuum because the thing is, human beings... Like we live this squishy existence that is complex and we're surrounded by situations and relationships and you're feeling depression symptoms. You're very rarely just only dealing with SAD. 
you would likely also have stress from work or some relationship issues going on, some boundary issues happening, uh, money problems. Like there's all kinds of things that can really influence the way that your brain can handle uh, what it's going through. You know, maybe if everything was going really great and you just only had the low light to deal with, you may have a totally different set of symptoms than if you had all kinds of other stressors going on that were really knocking a blow on your resilience. So it's important to, again, understand that you're not broken. Like your body's doing what bodies do. There are reasons why it's going to downregulate for different reasons. And in my opinion, even though you know, mental health issues are not fun. In my opinion, in my reading, most of these things were developed evolutionarily, theoretically, to help you survive in different symptoms. So theoretically, you could see a use for down-regulating your energy during the wintertime as kind of like a hibernation mode and up-regulating your energy during the summertime when it's time to hunt and gather and prepare food for the winter. That's the theory, but it makes sense to think of it as a useful adaptation for the human uh, race to survive. I did want to interject here. I like to tie the health things that I talk about into Mormonism because this is health beyond Mormonism. And we're going to talk about health. We're going to tie it into the church in one way or another. And I think that these are important discussions I know a lot of times I come out and I'm like talking about how like, oh, the church did this and the church said that. And in this case, like there's no church doctrine on seasonal affective disorder. <laughs> like there's, there's, um, you know, there have been plenty of prophets and people at the pulpit maybe mentioning things like if you're feeling sad or you're feeling depression that like maybe you sinned, maybe there's some reason for it. And that's ultimately not helpful. I think in a future podcast episode, I could probably do a whole episode just on like mental health in general and how the church deals with it or has dealt with it in the past. Um, I'm not going to go into that much detail here, but I do want to have a little discussion just on why is it so hard to talk about mental health uh, if you're coming out of the church, if you're coming out of church culture, like why is it so hard to talk about it? it I almost feel like Mormons and people who are coming out of Mormonism have an even, you know, it, it's already enough to have seasonal affective disorder going on. It's already enough to have mental health symptoms, but I feel like there's an added layer of difficulty talking about it, which leads to difficulty getting proper treatment um, or forming proper strategies to deal with this stuff coming out of the Mormon church. I have some ideas that may or may not sound right to you. Um, this is just me theorizing about the church and culture, but from what I've noticed, there's an awful lot of perfectionism coming out of the church and viewing mental health issues as failure, which it's not. I mean, I, I don't know how many times I can say this, that mental health problems are not failure. They're just something that's happening inside your body. Your body is doing what bodies do. And there are so many chemical and electrical and hormonal and, you know, neurotransmitters. You know, there's so much going on in your brain in order for your brain to function properly. And just like any other organ, if things get off, you're not going to work at your peak best. And your brain, just like any other organ, when it's not working at its peak best, it's important to be able to talk about it. And it's important to be able to take a look at yourself and really see, like, what is going on? Like, let's identify, let's identify the symptoms. Let's identify what's going on. Is it a time of day? Is it something I ate? Was it an interaction I had with somebody? Why am I not feeling my best? And being able to be really open and honest with yourself about just the fact that you're not feeling your best, but also maybe some of the reasons why you're not feeling your best is essential in order to get treatment and to build strategies so that you can feel your best. But the idea of perfectionism really throws a roadblock 
in front of that process because how can you look at what's going on honestly with yourself if mental health issues have been deemed as imperfect and your goal is to be perfect that's always going to be a roadblock that stands in the way unless you take some time and address perfectionism which um which I like to address quite often Um, I think that perfectionism is actually one of the biggest roadblocks to people's best health because of the way that it sort of stops you in your tracks from making progress on these sorts of things that require, you know, a close eye to detail and, and maybe trying new things with that risk of making mistakes. So perfection is very prevalent in the church. I think another reason why it's hard to talk about mental health issues and emotions in the church is... This concept that I've talked about before, and I will continue talking about it, about how the church has sort of rewritten our emotional map, or maybe not rewritten, but the church has written it for us in such a way that we are not able to be like emotionally intelligent with our own emotions, okay? And I'm, I'm not meaning to say that we're, <laughs> there's any fault of ours. But the church has really gone out of their way to teach people that when you feel certain emotions, they mean certain things. And the things that they mean are things that benefit the church. So, for instance, things like when you feel joy or happiness or clarity or excitement, you know, these positive things, positive emotions. What the church will teach is that those feelings are that the spirit is with you. And they are literally the spirit testifying the truth of the church and the truth of gospel concepts and maybe the truth of some decisions that you're making that would be in line with the church. Whereas negative emotions like anger, sadness, loneliness, apathy, anything dark is actually that you are not keeping the spirit with you like maybe you did something bad maybe maybe you were not reading your scriptures enough or maybe you sinned and these negative emotions are actually you rejecting the spirit because remember we were like commanded at baptism to have the spirit with us at all times and that was actually our responsibility to keep the spirit with us and so if you do something bad you're going to lose the spirit and so you know anything negative you know contention is of the devil any negative emotions we are taught are wrong. So positive emotions are good. Negative emotions are wrong. And this emotional like misidentification, like you guys, I I looked around to see if I could find like the name of a concept of this. The closest thing I could find was emotional control from uh, the Stephen Hawson's bite model. If you are questioning the Mormon church or if you have left the Mormon church, and you have not read about the BITE model, B-I-T-E, from Stephen Hawson. Go look that up. I'll link it up in the show notes. But this is basically criteria by which you can determine if you are in a cult or if you're just in, like, an organization. And one of the criteria is emotional control. And what, you know, what cult entities will do with emotional control is just what I said. They will take the emotions that you're feeling and they will assign meaning to it so that you don't have the space to assign your own meaning to your own emotions. You only get what they assign you. And this is to the benefit of the cult, you know, because you're training yourself to believe that your feelings are proving that the cult is right. If they're positive feelings or if you're having negative feelings, it's really driving you to work harder and harder for the benefit of the cult. And so Whether or not you believe that Mormonism is a cult, this is something that that they do use is this, you know, emotional misidentification, this emotional control. And that makes it very difficult to identify mental health, too. I think that it would be all too easy to have mental health issues and not be able to admit them to yourself in order to start that process of getting help and feeling your very best. Because if you admit that you're having dark feelings, 
that makes them real and it makes you responsible for them. And if dark emotions mean that you're sinning or that you are wrong or you have failed in some way, then that can get pretty dark pretty quick in the beliefs that you have about who you are as a human being. And so in order to avoid that fear, I think it's all too easy to just dismiss the fact that maybe you're not feeling your best and, you know, avoid taking the steps that you need. It's, it's a sad situation. I know some people have been in it. And I think one of the best things that you can do for your general mental health generally is to start learning how to map your emotions. Start putting names to feelings and to understand that if you're feeling joy, it might just be because you're having a joyful moment. It might not mean that that's the spirit testifying something, you know. So reclaim your emotional autonomy. And that can really help give you language for what you're feeling, what you're going through. And it can empower you to be able to identify if things really are going well in your life or if they're not and there's something that needs to be changed. It is not okay to judge people based on their mental health status. And I think it's also really important to understand that almost everybody goes through at least a period of depression or anxiety or one thing or another that would make their mental health not your top performing moment, you know? And so in a culture that is as cookie cutter, in a culture that is so mono as Mormonism, where you are meant to be as close to the same as everyone else or what they call perfection, right? Any differences, any variations in mental health status can really uh, cause some discrimination. And you know, sometimes people can be pretty judgy and it can be very difficult. So I think that for a lot of people, it's easier to just not admit that you've got something going on that's hard or to pretend or just not talk about it. And, you know, I, I, I do think it's important that before you talk with people and be vulnerable, that you, you know, that you're talking to safe people, right? Like it may not be a good idea to just walk up to your boss and be like, Hey, I'm suffering debilitating depression and I can't get my job done because you don't know if that boss is a safe person and would understand that and you don't know if that would put your job on the line. These kinds of things can make it very difficult to talk about your mental health, to address your mental health. And I mean, I understand, like, it is hard to address things. It is hard to talk about things, but it's also really, really important for your overall health. I mean, I can't state how important it is to understand that you can't separate mental health and physical health into two neat columns. There's so much overlap. If your mental health is not great, like how are you supposed to be able to successfully do your physical health behaviors, you know, your your habits? Like if you want to be exercising and eating healthy and, you know, practicing good sleep hygiene and things like that. If you're going through depression, it is really difficult to get your butt outside and exercise. You know, if you're going through depression, it's really difficult to get your game on and cut up the veggies to cook dinner. You know what I mean? Like mental health makes physical health difficult. Not to mention a lot of times mental health is tied directly to like inflammation and stuff like, you know, your mental health can directly trigger physical health issues autoimmune and, and some of these more nebulous conditions, you can't separate mental and physical health is what I'm saying. And so if you want to be feeling your best in all areas, you need to make sure that you're keeping your mental health in mind. Okay, good chat. All right, cool. So on to my own experience with SAD. I'm pretty open that I have SAD and it's, it's pretty bad. There have been some years that it was quite debilitating for me. So I grew up in Washington State on the dark side, on the, the cloudy side. And from the first I can remember being in high school, maybe, I remember not knowing that it wasn't normal to be like a different personality in the summer than I was in the winter. Like in the summer, I was, I was outgoing and social. You know, I was extroverted. I was athletic in the summer. I was, you know, I was more likely to put in the work to like 
cook food, <laughs> you know, and, and do interesting, fun things with my friends. I just had so much more energy and I just felt better in the summer. Now, in the winter, however, even back in high school, I was apathetic. I did not feel emotions really very much at all. Like my emotions were down to a level one, just barely. I didn't have crushes on people. I didn't laugh and play that much. I was tired all the time. Um, just not friendly. It's not that I was mean. It's just I wasn't interested in people. <laughs> and in high school, there's people all day, every day. But yeah, I was like a completely different person. And I didn't know that that wasn't normal. I think in Washington, I think that there are a lot of high schoolers who do have seasonal affective and they don't know it. And so I wasn't the only one. Like there is a general malaise in my high school. To be fair, maybe it was because my high school was very prison-like. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. But so here, here comes the control test for myself, how I really figured out that it was seasonal affective disorder was when I went to college to BYU-Idaho. I, I was there for four years. So I had four winter cycles to live through. And Idaho is very, very cold. Very cold. But even when it's cold, it still is sunny most days. In fact, it's very, very brightly sunny in the winter because there's snow on the ground. And so, you know, I was really surprised in my body because when I was going to class in the winter time and it was snowy and it was cold and I was busy and I was staying up late with my roommates because I was young and didn't know better and somehow some way that depression that malaise just never really hit me like I felt energetic just like I did in the summertime at home in Washington even in the wintertime in Idaho it was very strange to me. So after a year or two, I remember we came home for like an extended uh, Christmas holiday. And I, I don't know, I think it was like a month or so that, that we were back home, my husband and I. And that was long enough for the darkness of Washington to start impacting my brain. And I remember feeling so dark and so depressed. I must have been 19 or 20 years old. But just feeling so dark and so depressed for no reason. Like there was no like family stress. I mean, for anyone in the audience who like knows my family and our dynamic, like we have a lot of fun together. We get along pretty well. So, you know, there wasn't like family stress. Uh, I wasn't working a job, so there wasn't job stress. You know, I had my husband with me. So like it was just all these fun people. And yet my brain would just not turn on. And I thought it was so strange because, you know, we were there in Washington for four weeks in the wintertime. Just weeks before, back in Rexburg, it was cold and it was snowy, but my brain was normal. My brain was fine. I was energetic. I had a clear head. Coming back to Washington, my brain was foggy, tired, apathetic. Uh, I just felt like it's like sleeping all the time and even like crying a bunch. And I'm not a huge crier. I don't often feel the need to cry. And so it was really strange to me that when I was seeing my family and we were having holidays and having a good time together, that I was so dysfunctional. And the crazy thing to me was when we went back to Rexburg, almost the moment we got back into the sunshine, my energy levels were back and my mood was back. My mental clarity was back. And I, I took that as a like an N equals one control study of my own brain that there were enough controlled variables. I feel like it really was the darkness. And so I paid close attention to my brain and my body. And the next year we came back for four months during winter semester for my husband's internship. We lived at my parents' house again back in Washington State. And it was dark that whole time. And I felt a very similar malaise, darkness, um, just not functioning properly. And then, you know, as soon as we went back up to Idaho and the weather was better, uh, my mood and everything was back again. So, you know, having had two little control tests on myself, it was pretty apparent that this is what it is. And, um, you know, it, 
I had talked to doctors and people and told them all the symptoms and they definitely agreed that like, yeah, this is definitely seasonal affective disorder, you know. So at that point, I'm a young adult. We're starting our lives. We're graduating college. We're going to go somewhere. And my strategy was that we need to move somewhere. You know, we're graduating college. We're getting jobs and things. We need to move somewhere where the climate is light more of the time. So not the Northwest, which was sad because I love Washington. Like it is beautiful. It's where all my family was. It's where I grew up, all my memories, but it's so dark. I knew I wasn't going to be functioning properly. And it's not because I'm picky about the weather. I actually like the rain. It's not because I have a bad attitude. It's because my brain chemistry just wasn't going to have it. And so we ended up moving to Arkansas. Uh, and we lived there for about five years. And then we moved to Texas. Interesting thing is both Arkansas and Texas still have their dark seasons. They're just not as dark or as long as Washington. In Arkansas, it was a little bit more sporadic. They would have like two weeks at a time of like super overcast rain, like super dark rain, snow occasionally. But it was just for a couple of weeks at a time. And so that that was something that I could handle. Um, especially since when it comes to seasonal affective disorder, it's kind of like a cumulative thing. Like you can handle one or two days of darkness, but once you get to a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, the longer it goes, the worse the symptoms are. And so Arkansas was fine. I was able to, I did have some symptoms when those dark weeks would come, but they were short-lived and I was fine. However, when we moved to Texas was very interesting because Texas has a very predictable springtime overcast, like morning overcast season that runs all the way from probably March through May. So it's like three months straight of, you know, the weather is good. It's just super dark overcast every morning predictably for like three months straight. And I started to notice in the years that we lived in Texas, that that springtime, I started to get all the symptoms back that I used to get in wintertime in Washington State. I started to get in Texas. And so I got smart to it. Uh, a few years back, I bought one of those sad lights, seasonal affective disorder lights. It's about the size of like a iPad. And it's just a light. And you can push buttons to get kind of like more the red afternoon spectrum of light. And you can push a button that gets you like the blue light. And so I fiddled around with it and I got the blue light. And I started to do the best thing. I would set up my light on my piano. I'd practice the piano every day. And I would set up the light on the piano and use my light every day for light therapy. And lo and behold, it took a couple of weeks, but my symptoms started to ease and I didn't feel that tired. I didn't feel sleepy like when I was driving in the car in the morning time. I didn't feel that malaise and the foggy brain. It improved a lot. In fact, I actually started to lose a little bit of weight without really like doing anything because I also didn't feel as much of a need to nap in the afternoons. Or to just kind of like lay around. Because you know when you're not really feeling well, you're more likely to want to just lay around. And so I just wasn't on my feet as much. So that was a pretty interesting experiment using that seasonal affective disorder light while I practiced the piano. And it also ensured that I got my piano practice in every day, which is therapeutic in and of itself. As you guys know, I was a music major and I, I love music and I still teach music lessons to this day. And so getting that daily piano practice was like a dose of its own special kind of medicine. Um, so that's my story with seasonal affective disorder. And I would be really interested to hear your stories. What have you noticed about your own bodies? Maybe some of you don't notice any kind of change in your mental health when the seasons change. And that's awesome. Like, that's fantastic that th this is not something that you're going to have to worry about. But even if you don't have it, you very likely have people in your family or coworkers or friends who are dealing with it. They might not really understand the ins and outs of seasonal affective. And so maybe you can use some of the information that you're learning here in this podcast to help them and to help them understand that they're not broken. There's nothing wrong with them so that they can figure out some strategies. 
So moving on to strategies that you can use. Once you know that you have seasonal affective disorder or you suspect, there are a lot of things that you can do. I want you to remember you are the only person who can decide which strategies work for you. You are the only person living in your body, feeling what you feel, who understands what it's like to be you, which means you are truly the only person who can make decisions for your best health and well-being. If your depression is bad enough that you can't function or it's getting dangerous, please reach out to a therapist or get medicine or both, whatever you need to do. Reach out to a trusted friend or family member who can help hold your hand through the process of getting yourself help. Therapy and antidepressants have been really, they've been found to be very effective interventions for seasonal affective disorder, especially since SAD rarely happens in a vacuum. Like I said before, you may have other traumas or stressors compounding and compounding factors that exacerbate any mental health issues that you're having from seasonal affective. One thing that I really like to do with my clients whenever we're working through a health thing is to collect data. Data collection. I know it sounds really boring, but it's actually really cool. This is the way that you take things from being like subjective, like, oh, I kind of think I'm feeling better or like, I kind of think this is a problem. You take it out of that subjective zone and you turn it into something concrete and measurable that you can actually use to work from and like build strategies out of. So something that I do with my clients, with my health coaching clients, is that we will keep a spreadsheet. Spreadsheets are so good for this kind of thing. Or I mean, you know, you could you could keep a journal or you could keep track like in a calendar or something. But spreadsheets are super helpful for things like this. And what you do is keep track of the date and then keep track of two things. You're going to want to keep track of the light levels in the morning of those days and your energy level throughout the day. So two columns, one column for light levels uh, would be like, you know, maybe on like a, a one to 10 scale, 10 means it's like super bright and sunny. And like a one would be like, there's no sun at all in the morning. Like it's a dark, dark, like thunderstorm kind of, you know, just like no sun getting through. Okay. One to 10 scale on that. And then your energy level or like your depression symptoms, you know, and again, like a one to 10 scale, like one being of, you know, energy level, one would be like, you can't get out of bed. You can't think you're just apathetic. You just can't do anything. You're stuck, horribly depressed. Okay. And a 10 would be like, Hey, you've got so much energy. Like you're basically manic. Like you just can't stop going. You're going and going and going. That would be a 10 where like normal for your energy would be like a five or like feeling really good and energetic would be like a seven or eight. And so, you know, you keep track of your energy level in one column, you keep, keep track of the light levels in another column, you got the date in another column. And then if you really want to, it could be handy to add a fourth column for other compounding variables that might impact what your energy level or your depression level was doing that day. You know, it, it would be like a notes column. So you're just taking notes. So it'd be like, well, I was up all night with a kid who's puking. Well, that is something that could impact your energy level, right? So that would be data that you want to keep or something like, you know, just any kind of variables. Like if you were feeling sick or if you had a headache or if you're having allergies or, you know, menstruating, if you have a uterus, any of those variables that would be great to keep in a little notes column. That way, if your data is skewed as far as like how energetic you're feeling, you'll have a little note there to, to keep track of that. Okay, so collecting data is really great for things like seasonal affective disorder because that gives you a way to compare the light levels directly to your energy levels. And especially over time, like, you know, if you're going through a period of several months, you can see the weather's changing over the months and maybe you're also seeing that your energy level is changing over the months too, that's really good data to have. And that will be really good data to um, take to your doctor if you're going to go get therapy or a medication to help with your seasonal affective disorder symptoms. So data is awesome, awesome, awesome. 
incidentally, uh, when I have like weight loss clients or I have fitness clients or, you know, anybody working on any other kind of health goal, we take data all the time. Like data is so very good for figuring, you know, figuring out if the what you're thinking is happening is actually happening. And just to provide so much clarity in things because you have no idea, like when it comes to your health, there are so many things that are subjective that just because you feel like something is happening. But once you get data on there, it turns it into objective, you know, you're able to really see if the thing that you're thinking is happening is actually happening. So data, data, data. I love data. <laughs> so continuing on with strategies to help with seasonal affective. Once you've got a good data collection system going, get your butt outside in the morning. Even when it's cloudy, unlike vitamin D exposure, where, you know, like vitamin D exposure requires a certain strength and directness of sun to really build that vitamin D on your skin. For seasonal affective disorder, it has to do more with the light that your eyes are seeing. And so even if it's cloudy, getting outside is still going to do more good than staying indoors. Now, I understand for a lot of people, you may live in climates where getting outside even a little bit in the morning is a no-go. And if that's the case, consider using a SAD light, SAD light, Seasonal Affective Disorder Light. These you can buy for relatively cheap, $20 to $30 on Amazon. They come in, you know, maybe about the size of like an iPad. And what they do is they're just kind of a bright light. And you can change the color on a lot of them to be either like the morning blue light or like sort of the afternoon evening kind of more yellowish red light. There are uses for the afternoon light too, as far as like dopamine regulation and things. But basically what you do is you put the light about two feet away from your face, but not in the center of your vision. You want it off to the side at 45 degrees. And this would be like if you've got your laptop out and you're doing work on your laptop, you would set it just to the side of your laptop. Shining directly on you on the brightest setting, on the blue light setting, first thing in the morning, around the time of day that that early morning light would also be giving you blue light if you were outdoors at the right time of day. So basically first thing in the morning, seven or eight in the morning, and you want that exposure for 20 to 40 minutes every day. It is cumulative. So some people say they can start to feel effects same day. Okay. But really what the data has shown is it usually takes about two weeks cumulative, which means you're doing it every single day before you really start seeing impacts that, that you know for sure it's working. Which means if you're going to use your sad light, you need to make a commitment to yourself that this is therapy, right? This is your therapy. This is what you're going to do to feel your best and you're actually going to schedule it in, make it a part of your morning routine. So the sad light can be a helpful tool for those who can't get outside during that time of year. Um, it may not be realistic to get outside in the morning every single day, you know, depending on where you live. So use the sad light. You know, it's it's available. It's on Amazon. It's cheap and it's easy to use, you know. So use your resources. That's what I would say. Another strategy that can really help with seasonal affective is morning exercise. For one thing, it wakes you up, not just your brain, but your body too. And anything that will boost your dopamine will help with your circadian rhythms. And so if you can get morning exercise in, that will boost your dopamine. You'll feel more energetic for the day. And especially if you can get outside, weather permitting, morning exercise outside, then you could be compounding your light therapy and your exercise, which would be even more helpful. The next strategy is getting good sleep. So good sleep hygiene. And what I mean by hygiene, sleep hygiene is making sure that uh, you're going to bed around the same time every night, that you're following a routine to help get your brain and body in line as far as what's about to happen. You know, you're about to go to bed avoiding screens and blue light within an hour or two before bed. Because again, that blue light, the same thing as with our, our blue light therapy in the morning time, the blue light from your screens actually will 
inhibit your melatonin production. In fact, some people will just download a seasonal affective light app like on their laptop or on their iPad, and they can use that for their light therapy. But the thing is, like scrolling on your phone does what light therapy will do, except at night when you're laying in bed trying to go to sleep. So try to avoid screens. Try to avoid TV, computer, phones within an hour or two before bed. That is sleep hygiene, as well as making sure that your bed is just for bed, just for sleeping. You're not staying up late doing other things in bed like reading or watching TV or anything. Bed is for bedtime. Following a routine of like, you know, stop eating at a certain time of night, brush your teeth, floss, wash your face, you know, it's maybe less important, like specifically what you do in your routine more than like what your routine is so that your body is used to a certain order of events before it goes to bed. So it can get nice and relaxed and you know what to expect every night. So sleep hygiene is more than just going to bed on time. It's all those other things that will help make you sleepy routinely and make sure that you sleep really well every night. Okay. You get good sleep. You are not only set up to have better brain chemistry, but you're also set up to follow your health routines more better, (laughs) more better. You're going to be more successful following your health routines, which are also things that will help with your circadian rhythms and your general health too. So the next tip and trick to help with seasonal affective disorder is caffeine. Caffeine will not replace light exposure. Caffeine also does not replace good sleep. But just like exercise and getting good sleep, if caffeine helps you feel more energetic, you're going to be more likely to follow through on your other health routines. Feeling more energetic will prep you to be more willing to chop your veggies, prep your food, get your butt out the door and exercise, or get your butt out the door to walk the dog and get your light exposure. Um, So caffeine definitely does have its place helping with seasonal affective. However, it will not replace like medicine if you need medicine or the light if you need the light. Okay. So use caffeine as a tool. Do not use it as a replacement. The next thing on the list, uh, social exposure. You know, just like any other type of depression, being around people, especially your people, can help wake up your brain, can help release dopamine, especially if you enjoy the people that you're hanging around with. And it's also very motivational to help you with your health routines if you have people who are involved with some or all of your health routines too. So for instance, if you have people who you are exercising with or people who you're walking a dog with or people who you are meeting up with at some time of the day that helps motivate you to follow your health routines maybe in a social way. Like for instance, like if you can nerd out with your friends about recipes, that type of social exposure will help motivate you to follow through with your recipes once you're at home. Okay. So I can't recommend enough how important community is for you being able to be successful with your health routines. Okay. The next thing kind of leads in from that getting a healthy diet. Your gut health plays directly into your neurotransmitters and how well everything functions together, as well as making sure you eat enough calories and enough protein, getting enough vitamins and minerals and all those things that you need, getting enough nutrition will help with your energy level. And also making sure that you're not eating too much at any one meal. You've all had the experience of having like too big of a lunch and then that afternoon slump is just uncontrollable. Like you just, you can't function the rest of the day because you you had too big of a lunch. And You know, maybe that's a thing that happens once in a while. That's fine. But sometimes you can get in the habit of eating too much. So it makes you sleepy every day. And once that starts to happen, it can, it can screw with your energy levels. But also if you're eating too much and making yourself tired, then there's a compounding effect on your other health routines. You're not going to be as likely to get your steps in for the day. And if you end up having a big long nap in the afternoon, maybe it might mess with your sleep at night. If it's a longer nap, then then maybe what you should be getting. And then, of course, like there are some health issues that come with eating too much 
over a long period that puts you at more risk of you know of the western diseases you know your your cholesterol high cholesterol and heart disease and diabetes and things like that and so really when it comes to like having a healthy diet so much of your healthy diet is eating the right amount for your body as well as like your gut health and making sure that your um bacterial balance is right your flora and your fauna are all are all balanced well okay so I recommend eating a high protein diet with lots and lots of plants. They call it a plant forward diet, but with a lot of protein. Okay. I also like to say, eat like somebody who likes to poop. (laughs) And that's true. If you eat enough fiber throughout the day, you're going to have really great bathroom habits. Fiber is the best way to make sure that your bathroom habits are good. It's the most obvious first step to take if you are questioning if your gut health is okay. And fiber is preventative for all sorts of cancers and diseases, especially bowel-related cancers. You want to make sure stuff is moving, and you want to make sure you're drinking enough water to keep things going really well, too. Okay, so my last tip or trick to help with seasonal affective is actually more of a dopamine thing, but it can really help with your circadian rhythms, and that is cold therapy. You guys, there's actually been a lot of evidence that cold therapy brings up your baseline dopamine. It will make you feel more energetic for the whole day with very little risk. Uh, The only risk to cold therapy would maybe if you feel like you're at risk of some sort of heart issues and jumping into too cold of water might put you into shock. Okay, that is a thing that has been known to happen. And so I recommend if you are going to start cold therapy that you start with the cold water being a little less cold and over the course of weeks and months to kind of get used to getting colder and colder for longer periods, okay? But you can start out with just cool tap water. You just only need it cold enough to give you that eek response for 30 seconds to two minutes. You don't really need to go any longer than that. You may not get more benefits to going longer in the cold water, and you may not get more more benefits going colder either. As long as it's cold enough to get that reaction, what that does is it shoots out adrenaline. Adrenaline and dopamine work together. They're buddies. They're twins. And so that adrenaline will end up bringing up your dopamine levels. Okay, so the adrenaline is the eek response. That's adrenaline pumping, and then the dopamine follows after. Okay. One common one that's like super easy is that when people hop in the shower in the morning, you just turn it on and go into the water as it comes out of the the pipes, like the temperature that's in the pipes, you just use that. And especially in the wintertime, that's going to be cold enough to make you go eek. Make sure you get your shoulders and your head. And then after your two minutes or whatever, then you can turn the temperature back up to where you want it to be and it'll basically get the job done. Okay, but some people get those ice baths. There are companies that make ice baths. Some people will just get a big like barrel in their backyard and they'll fill it up and hop in it first thing in the morning in the winter. Any way you do it, you know, find what works for you. One of my favorites is to just to jump into the swimming pool at the gym. My gym has an outdoor pool and I'll just go jump in it for a minute and then get out as quick as I can. My skin's all red and I'm shivering and stuff. And and then when I'm done, I'll go like sit in the sauna <laughs> and I'll warm back up. But it does, it does seem to help. Okay. So that's cold therapy. There's lots of good evidence about that. It's pretty fun and it's it's a safe one to do. But you know, getting your dopamine levels up is really helpful for your circadian rhythms and can be really helpful to help treat seasonal affective disorder. So bottom line, I'm going to go ahead and wrap, but bottom line is a lot of people suffer from seasonal affective disorder. A lot of people have seasonally related slumps, even if it's not as bad as what you would call a depression. But yeah, the light levels do affect probably everybody to some degree or another. And this doesn't mean that you're bad or wrong or broken. There is no moral weight to the way that you feel. And even if it gets as bad enough as you would call it like a mental illness, it still doesn't carry any moral weight. Like you didn't do anything wrong. 
you didn't do anything bad for your body to be acting like this. Your body's doing what bodies do. And so it's really important that even as you go through and you identify what's going on, you're finding strategies to work. It's really important that you don't judge yourself and shame yourself as a human being for for going through this, for suffering with this. Um, there are a lot of things that you can do to uh, help with the with the symptoms. There are plenty of interventions, and there's also like medicine and therapy that you can do. So you know, seasonal affective disorder. It impacts a lot of people, but there's also a lot that you can do to help yourself out. That's it for this episode of Health Beyond Mormonism. You guys reach out if you have questions or if you have ideas for podcast episodes that you would like me to research on and build an episode. And I can't wait to see you next time. We'll see you later. That's it for this episode of Health Beyond Mormonism. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share it with someone you love. Search, ponder, and pray about what you learned today. Come find me on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and return and report. We'll see you guys next time.